The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him down off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
south of Bernalbe interprets the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in that famous painting by that name is different from saying, I love Jesus, whom I find in that sacrament. We are totally dependent on understanding what we mean by love as English-speaking people by the context in which we use it. And most of the time, that serves us pretty well, but not always. And a perfect example of that is when Jesus says, love your enemies. Does that mean I'm supposed to treat my enemy like my good pal? You see, it's a little hard, even from the context, to understand quite what Jesus was expecting of us, what Jesus was calling us to. And that's where knowing the Greek words behind the word love in a particular context is so helpful. Because the Greeks, in many ways, were like the Inuits, formerly known as Eskimos, who have 21 words for snow. I'm thinking about that the other day when we were having snow at 10 degrees. It's, it's a different kind of snow than it is at 30 degrees. And they have words that describe that very precisely. But the Greeks had many words for love. And there were four, especially, that had to do with interpersonal relationships. The first one, of course, was eros, from which we get the English word erotic. It's that physical kind of attraction, even that, that driving passion uh, that we have to be careful of because it can so easily turn into lust. Then there was storge. That's probably the least known, but those who have read C.S. Lewis's book on the four loves know about storge. That is the love that is found within the family, particularly children toward their parents. It was a love that carried with it a sense of duty, a sense of respect, and an affection, but not in the same sense as the next word I want to talk about for love in Greek, and that's philios. Somewhere along the way, we've all been told Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, because the phil in Philadelphia comes from the Greek philios, meaning friend, a deep affection toward another person. And that was a very emotional kind of attraction, a very emotional kind of love. And then there was what the Greeks considered to be the highest form of love, and that was agape. Agape was less emotional. It was more rational. It had to do with um, thinking the best of the other, um, honoring the dignity of another, being concerned about the other's welfare. And that helps us in that teaching of Jesus. Because when Jesus said, love your enemies, 
he was using the word agape rather than the word phileos. So he wasn't saying be best friends with your enemy. They wouldn't be your enemy, which would be a good thing, but you got can't start there. What he was saying is that in spite of your disagreement, in spite of any struggle you may be in with this person that we're struggling with, you still need to be concerned about that person's basic welfare. There still needs to be a sense of goodwill toward that person's dignity as one who is um, made in God's image and is, in fact, a child of God. So understanding the grief is just really helpful in understanding what love means whenever you see it in the Holy Scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, which the manuscripts we have, the oldest manuscripts we have, are all written in Greek. Agape was a very useful word for the early Christians because it so conveyed the love that they had experienced in Jesus Christ. Even if they weren't best buddies with Christ, they knew that Jesus had a compassion and a sense of uh, wanting the best for this fallen world in which we live. It was the kind of love that would even take him to the point of suffering and death on our behalf. Even though he may not know us personally the way we know, you know ourselves as friends, he was able to show compassion for all people in the world, even to the point of death. At the same time, Christians realized that if they were going to use this word agape to describe the love of Christ, they were going to have to add richness to his meaning. And that's what the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians is all about. It's adding that richness and that texture to this Greek word that they were adopting to describe the love of Christ for the world that he was willing to die for. And so we have, as I say, that 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians where Paul is describing that love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love uh, never seeks his own advantage, and so on and so forth. Well, you know, all of that is well and good, but whenever we read this passage, we shouldn't have to go through a whole Sunday school lesson to find out exactly what that word is supposed to mean. And so the question might be asked, is there any other English word that can help us to understand it as soon as we hear it? Well, I think there are two. And the first one I've used already, and that is goodwill. 
Goodwill goes a long way toward explaining what the meaning of agape love is all about. And you could begin to insert it right in the passage. I, I think it's better if you turn it into a phrase, one who has good will is patient. One who has good will is kind. One who does good will and has good will does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, and so forth. But there's another English word that I think is even better. It's an old English word, and it's richer meaning has sort of been lost, but not completely in our modern world. And that is the word that the King James Version uses to um, translate the Greek, and that word is charity. Normally we refer, of course, to charity in today's world as giving alms to the poor, you know, helping out those who are in distress or who are in need. But charity in its traditional meaning really closely conveyed what agape was all about. And we can pick that up not so terribly long ago, just 150 years uh, by church standards, that's not long, uh, in Lincoln's second inaugural address. Remember, when he was elected the second time, the war, Civil War was nearing its end. And by the time he was actually inaugurated in March, we were within a month or two of the whole thing being over. He did not dare to predict that much of that quick finish in his inaugural address, but he did clearly see that it was time to begin to turn people's focus toward the future, toward the reconciliation, toward the healing that would need to take place. And at the end of that inaugural address are these words, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with other nations. With malice toward none, charity toward all. He is not saying, make quick friends with those whom we have been battling with on uh, the various battlefields of this horrible contest as he calls in the war. He was saying, though, that a spirit of goodwill needed to take over once that conflict was over. A sense of goodwill and charity toward those with whom we had been in the fight so that the wounds could be healed and we could And that is the word that I think can most deeply and fully convey the meaning of love in this 13th chapter of First Corinthians.
I'm going to read it in the King James because there's a lot of other Elizabethan English that's a little hard to get through. But you can replace charity in every one of these cases. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have charity, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have charity, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have charity, I do nothing. Charity is kind. Charity is patient. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Charity does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Charity never fails. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of 